and welcome to the ACS Thoracic Oncology Assembly podcast on immunotherapy and lung cancer. My name is Maddie Triplett. I'm a pulmonologist and an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Washington and an assistant member of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. I'm talking today with Dr. McGarry Houghton, who's also a pulmonologist and a professor of medicine at the University of Washington and a member of the Clinical Research and Human Biology Divisions of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And he's really an expert in the field of lung cancer immunology, so it's great to have him. Uh, today, we're going to talk a bit about recent developments in lung cancer immunotherapy, where the field is headed, and why it's clinically relevant to all pulmonologists. All right, so thanks for joining us today, uh, McGarry. So I want to talk to you a little bit about research um, in immunotherapy for lung cancer first. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what you think have been kind of the biggest breakthroughs and biggest updates in the field in the past 10 years? Sure. Well, there have been several of them. So I think if you go back 10 years, um, many people wouldn't have thought of lung cancer as an immunologic disease or being one of the uh, cancers that you would even address uh, immunologically. And that all really changed with the initial trials with the PD-1 antibodies that were published, you know, 2012, 2013. And I think, you know, those initial sort of basket trials that had melanoma, renal cell, non-small cell lung cancer patients, they weren't just focused for lung cancer. The signal was so good, um, you know, 18%, 20% just sort of in late stage lung cancer patients. That, that, has, that has really changed the field. Um, the research that's come from that in just a few years then is why does somebody respond to that drug? So this whole idea of cigarette smokers doing better because they have more mutations. Nobody would have known that when we first started doing this. Um, some of the things you would guess, you know, the more CDA T cells in your tumor, the better you do. That's common thread and theme across really all tumor types. Um, similarly, these, these things that you see about the interferon gamma signature and, uh, and about PDL1, you know, those all make sense. But I think if you, if you go back, we have learned a lot in a short period of time that EGFR mutant patients, a lot of people thought would do really well with that. They have this unique mutation and antigen. Maybe they would do extremely well. They, they haven't done well, right? So that's, you know, and they aren't receiving that drug today. So, um, I think just the initial, these clinical trials and this clinical translational research has really moved things forward. There's a lot of basic science to ever get us there, but the, the advances have really been more in the clinical realm mm -hmm. that have, have, have moved that so far. And, and kind of where are we at today with, with the use of immunotherapy in lung cancer and kind of what, what are the, the biggest challenges that... Um, we're kind of facing in this field. Yeah, so there's a cancer immunologist here at the Fred Hutch named Matt Cheever. He's the head of the only um, clinical trials network for immunotherapy called the Interimmunotherapy Trials Network, the CITN. And his favorite uh, adage is that the most common lung cancer patients seen in clinic today, they went to see their doctor because they failed PD-1 antibody and they don't know what to do. Again, completely revolutionary. You wouldn't have seen those patients five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, unless you have a targeted mutation, EGFR out, can you get that targeted therapy? Almost every other lung cancer patient is going to wind up getting a PD-1 antibody with or without chemotherapy. And 
the vast majority of those patients are going to recur. So, it, you know, a good chunk, say 20, and with chemo a little bigger number, maybe 30%, will, will have a nice response. A bunch of those patients will be refractory, and most of the patients who respond will sort of have some recurrence. That's the problem. That's mm -hmm. the question. How do you get the response rates up? How do you deal with the refractory patient that makes these drugs work when they, they really don't for 80% of the patients? And then what do you do if somebody recurs? And, you know, they, they have a good couple of years. We see that. You know, there's some durable responders, but then when they stop working, what do you do? So the field, I think, has gotten a little bit bad of itself. The estimate changes all the time, but currently I think it's safe to say that there are around 1,500 active clinical trials in the United States alone combining something with a PD-1 antibody. Okay. The companies that have assets that might prove useful, they're throwing them out there and hoping they get lucky. And no one has. Uh, the only thing that has proven better than PD-1 monotherapy has been the addition of chemotherapy. And no one completely understands why that is. You could say that there's some improvement when you add that ipilimumab, anti-CTLA-4 antibody, which is a mainstay of melanoma immunotherapy. Hasn't really been that great in, in lung cancer. So that's where we are. I think people have finally started to say, wait a minute, all the logical things that we thought that we would try, you know, another immune checkpoint in three years hasn't really happened. Many of these things are as big hope for OX40, uh, IDL1, these inhibitors, big investment in pharma to get these to the clinic. Not successful. So uh, people are back to the drawing board. Uh, uh, and I think they're back to the drawing board in clinical translational research. What can you see in these specimens of people who were successful or not successfully treated with these drugs? that tell you really where's the pressure point in that cancer. And again, the low-hanging fruit has been dry. The things that they had on the shelf, oh yeah, this could probably work. You know, those, unfortunately, haven't really moved the bar. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's up to new approaches. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about kind of what you're doing with your, in your research program and, and kind of what your goals are. So for me, the goal is, um, or the hypothesis, I guess, is that, that there's something within the tumor microenvironment that is limiting um, the ability of PD-1 to work. So if you have T cells in your tumor and, and they can't access the tumor, that's a problem. So as we were speaking earlier, you know, the people who smoke and have lots of mutations do better with PD-1. But anybody listening to this who sees lung cancer patients know most of the patients they see with lung cancer smoke a lot of cigarettes and have a bunch of mutations. Mm -hmm. So there's a disconnect there mm -hmm. where there are many, many, many patients should benefit from this therapy, but no. And it's not just the mutation problem then, right? Something after that. There's something that says, well, I probably do have a tumor-reactive T cell that could kill that cancer, but I can't get in there and do it. And why is that? So we've profiled tumors to try and study that. We focus on the myeloid lineage cells. We think that the actually tumor-associated neutrophils are the biggest problem and that going after them um, would work. Uh, and we're trying to do a clinical trial on, with a logical drug that would accomplish neutrophil antagonism in, in combination with a P1 antibody. I think it's important, and 
to note, though, that you know, that's a chunk. I mean, we think maybe as many as 25% of patients have this myeloid problem that could be addressable this way, but there are other chunks that it, it won't. So some of these tumors are really these sort of uh, immunologically quiet tumors. There aren't many mutations. There isn't much going on. Those patients exist. How do you treat them? Um, there are other complicated uh, immune response phenotypes that, that aren't really T-cell or myeloid. They might be more you know, uh, NK-cell driven. Uh, how do you tackle those? So, so I think the fundamental concept to try and find a subset of cancers that have a defect that may inhibit T-cell infiltration is something a lot of us are doing. Mm -hmm. But the answer to that might be different um, depending on which subset you're actually going in. Um, I, I should have mentioned it at some point in time that the, you know, the other place the field is going um, is, is adoptive cellular therapies, right? So something that we do a lot of in the Fred Hodge where, you know, can you give a TD19 CAR T cell, you know, for lymphoma, which we do here, can you do that in solid tumors that hasn't hit prime time, um, but is another way around the PD-1. Uh, failure problem. The Moffitt Cancer Center has a trial with pill where basically they take a piece of cancer, they grow a bunch of lymphocytes out of it, and they shoot them back in in the billions. That's been successful in melanoma. A couple of patients in their trial had decent clinical responses. Hopefully we can learn something from that. So there, there are many different ways to get around this. It's just a matter of whether you think the way around is there's some defense mechanism of the tumor you need to overcome or could you just overwhelm it with numbers, mm -hmm. you know, and sort of break down the, you know, the football analogy, just have too many ball carriers, mm -hmm. or too many blockers for the number of defensive players. And I, you know, you, you get through that way. And, and every possible strategy is being tried. Right. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see which ones of those prove fruitful. So if you had to kind of predict and look forward, like where, where are we going to be at in 10 years with, the treatment of lung cancer in some of those kind of PD-1 non-responsive patients? Hard question. Um, I think the optimistic view would be to say that as these clinical trials are done, and they're done now in a, in a certain way with correlative studies, biopsy-heavy trials where you get tissue and either longitudinal specimens and plasma specimens where you can really understand the evolution of why something succeeded or failed. That is the hope, doing trials in that way and strong clinical translational research to find the pressure points and, and treat them. In the best case scenario, there winds up being some diagnostic test or panel um, where you would say this person has this type of a problem um, in addition to the you know, obvious uh, PD-1 problem. And so you would say PD-1 plus drug X for patient Y, you know, is the way to go. And, mm -hmm. and that wouldn't be the same. And so you'd have buckets um, of patients and they would have some one of the targeted therapy. Um, that's the hope. The reality is, is 10 years would be extremely short period of time to do something like that. Um, and it's really challenging to do those trials because the drug assets are typically owned by different companies. And so if, if the idea is I really need to combine two or three agents that, from, that are owned by different people, how do you do that? Um, there are some barriers. I think that's the best case scenario, that we work towards that, we make significant pro progress. 
I think the worst case scenario is that we hit a lull or a plateau, kind of like happened in the EGFR mutation, right? So you had Jafitinib uh, and Nerlotinib, and patients really benefited from that, and then we wound up with all these secondary kinase mutations, mm -hmm. and it took us a while, right, to really get better at that. Now we, now we have Ocimertinib, and it's it's better, but you would say since the introduction of EGFR therapies, when the benefit just was massive for these patients, that what we've done since then has been plateaued. We have not really been able to overcome that. And so I don't know what's going to happen in immune therapy. And I don't know what's going to happen in EGFR immune therapy, but people are really actively working. You, you can... You can have this sudden massive improvement like we've seen with PD-1 and like we saw with, with EGFR antagonists. But how long it takes you to, to take the next step is unclear because they knew the problem in EGFR a long time ago. Right? Yeah. They knew T790M, secondary mutations, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But it's been challenging to work around that. Um, and I think a matter of time, we will as a field. And I'm sure the same thing will happen in immune therapies, but it might take longer than we want. Right. Um, maybe we'll segue a little bit to, to the clinical kind of application, you know, with how prevalent lung cancer is, and, and particularly in a population that an adult pulmonologist is going to see, what is a general pulmonologist who doesn't really work in this field? What, what do they really need to know about immune checkpoint inhibitors in their practice? A few things. One, um, Going back to targeted therapies, I think historically you saw a stage four lung cancer patient. Maybe you were the pulmonologist who diagnosed that patient, smoker, COPD, emphysema. And you're thinking, you know, do I really even refer this patient to an oncologist? Do I, you know, when they ask me questions about that, should I receive treatment? I know there were people that because I was one of them that would have been reluctant to, to really bang that drum. You know, the traditional platinum double chemotherapy give you 10 months, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, and to be honest and upfront about that, I think today those sick patients may have options. Um, and EGFR was one of them, right? And those are relatively low toxic therapies. Some of those people present brain mess and super late disease and then wind up doing it during a while. P1 antibody, I think that's one thing you need to know is that this these are lesser toxic therapies and people can get durable responses. And so it's probably worse even in a pretty sick late stage patient, given them a real opportunity to benefit from what could be, you know, several years response. Mm -hmm. The other is that um, you still have to expect complications in yeah, those yeah. patients. And yeah. so, um, you know, the, the dreaded complication of PD-1 antibody therapy would be uh, pneumonitis. And pneumonitis can be fatal, uh, although it rarely is. Right. But it, it can get that bad. Um, we've seen patients here with, you know, uh, antibody-mediated uh, or autoimmune diabetes and various mm -hmm. other disorders. And so uh, the theme is you can get an autoimmune reaction when you unleash your T-cells. And mm -hmm. that's why the whole pdl one axis exists in the first place. It shouldn't be a, a reason not to give the therapies, um, and it sh I think people should understand that in people who develop pneumonitis, it's typically manageable. Either a course of prednisone 
Um, in many cases, you, you would remove the drug. I can tell you from our own data that many of the people who have to stop taking the drug for toxicities in the first three or four months wind up having durable responses off the drug, right? Because yeah. you re-energize their immune system. So, so I, I wouldn't be afraid to take the drug off if I really thought the patient was in harm's way. I think the other thing that's different, there's two things that are different about lung cancer patients. One is that almost all lung cancer patients have some level of lung disease. You rarely see people right. with pristine lungs. And so it looks like from the preliminary numbers that having a complication of PD-1 therapy is going to be higher in a lung cancer patient than in a melanoma patient. And the other thing is that the treatment for lung cancer is different. So looking at the complications of the lung is Right. So it's easy to diagnose with somebody um, with a, the diabetes patient we had. You know, I mean, that was pretty obvious. But somebody got radiation therapy. Right. They have a little bit of fibrosis mm -hmm. or And you go looking at that scan. They're immunocompromised. They're coughing up sputum. Do they, do they have pneumonia? Do they have radiation fibrosis? Do they have radiation pneumonitis? Do they have PD-1 pneumonitis? Do they get platinum double therapy, is this a problem with cyclophosphamide? I mean, these are the real world patients you see is not straightforward. Right. Uh, again, 45-year-old metastatic melanoma patient with new infiltrates, you've really narrowed the playing field of what those complications are and what causes it how to treat it. And that is not the case in lung cancer patients. I think that's why pulmonologists really need to play a more active role. I think oncologists in many of these cancers are managing their own complications. And we aren't seeing a lot of these patients. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to a lung cancer patient, I've seen patients diagnosed with what was thought to be PD-1 pneumonitis that I just thought, no way. You know, mm -hmm. there's just all these other things going on. And sometimes these findings are very unilateral. It doesn't make sense for a systemic drug right. and a systemic disorder. And so I, I think, uh, for one, pulmonologists should be excited and willing and available to see these patients. I think um, we do not want to miss the boat on this because the patients, can, especially lung cancer patients, can benefit from having a little bit more nuanced look at it. If I, when I see them, I try to not stop their drugs because I think it's their lifeline. Mm -hmm. um, but if they, you know, if they need to, um, you have to do it. So, you know, that was, that was a good segue talking about kind of a pulmonologist role clinically in the field. If somebody's a fellow or early career pulmonologist researcher and has kind of an interest in this, either from the clinical side or the research side, you know, what advice would you give that early stage person? I think it, I think the most important advice that you give to people when they're training is, you know, is really to tell them to do what they want. I mean, I, I think it, uh, when I trained, you had to go in the lab. There was no clinical harm. Um, and if you go in a lab and you really don't want to do it, guess what? You'll <laughs> <laughs> wind up in practice. Yeah. I have several friends who, you know, spent a few years. Some of them really enjoyed the, the, the lab experience and sort of how it allowed them to look at things. But if you're trying to develop your career, I think it's very important. To, to have an honest uh, take on what you want to do. If you want to do something like I do um, and have a, a wet lab that's looking at mechanisms of immune escape and cancers, then you need uh, to go into an immunology lab uh, and, and get sort of hardcore basic science immunology training. That's what you want to do. 
if you want to um, do something different, there are role models for that. So, so you know, uh, one of the thoracic oncology uh, section members is Matt Kinsey in Vermont, and he's an interventional pulmonologist, and he's active in immune therapies because he's actually injecting things into tumors. Um, uh, so, it, and he's doing a lot of the correlative science because he's getting us specimens, right? So, so you can do more of a translational right. slant um, from many different avenues. I think it's it just kind of depends what you want to do. If you're interested in the translational aspects, um, there are opportunities to really just focus on the correlative science. The tumor comes out. What can you learn about it? Biopsy, plasma, uh, collected. How can you study those things? How can you uh, implement uh, better therapies? How you know complications as we talked about? I mean, there's certainly careers in that. I only know of one group in the country who's actively doing this. It's trying to do bronchoalveolar massage on all these patients mm -hmm. and study those cellular compartments and understand what is the immunological response mm -hmm. mediating it. Um, are the T-cell clones similar, are the T-cell clones that are actually in the cancer, things like that. Those are important questions to really learn ultimately what that's all about and how you would more effectively treat it. Um, open field, you know, not many people doing that. You could do that from a real sort of, you know, lab scientist immunology perspective or the translationalist doing the bronchoscopies and data analysis. Uh, identify a, a you know a role model, a type of career, or somebody that, that you want to follow, and trying to get the right mentorship to do mm -hmm. it. I think there are opportunities for pulmonologists in this space. Certainly, as I mentioned, the complications mm -hmm. space, um, uh, and also there's this poorly understood and understudied concept that, you know, people with fibrosis and emphysema get more cancer. Mm -hmm. We published a few years ago right. that actually COPD patients had better responses to PD-1 right. and lived longer than people without COPD, so the curve flipped, right? Mm -hmm. Because only COPD means you're going to die your cancer quicker. Right. I have no idea why that is. Mm -hmm. It was an observation we made in studying a large cohort of, of patients who received PD-1 antibodies. Those are those are pulmonary questions. The cancer field, the oncologists, the cancer immunologists are never going to tackle those sort of lung biology problems. But it's the reality is that lung cancers originate and live in this thing called the lung that we're supposed to know a lot about. And those disease processes and those microenvironments, there, you know, there's disease environments within environments, if you will, right? There's the emphysema and then there's the tumor, the tumor microenvironment. How do those communicate? And what implications for immune therapies because, you know, COPD is largely an immune-mediated disease. Right. You know, so I think there's a lot of opportunities. Yeah. just depends what you're passionate about and, and finding the right sort of guidance to, to, to get you where you want. Right. And one thread I kind of heard through there is we're kind of uniquely positioned, right? We are the, the folks that make the early diagnosis, do the diagnostics, and so have access to those kind of samples and patients often. I, w I would say, so sort of step out of the immune therapy space for a minute, the best opportunity for a pulmonologist to have a successful career in lung cancer is in the diagnostic space. Mm -hmm. And that's the one area that we own and that those patients get sent us for the diagnostic right. uh, uh, sort of phase of the disease. And 
there are a myriad of research opportunities there and academic opportunities, uh, everything from, you know, how do you screen patients to what do you do once you screen them to can you use tumor immunology mm -hmm. to help you earlier detect these. If you had a probe against a certain T cell clone or if you had uh, antibodies in the blood that were tumor reactive antibodies, could you purpose these for early detection? Could you use an early clinical cohort with these things to build pipelines that would ultimately lead to therapies? If you knew all the antibodies and all the antigens in the earliest stages of cancer, could you eliminate these early these lesions from mm -hmm. ever getting further? I and mean, these are the these are the types of things people are actively trying to pursue, but they're in their infancy. And this is where you know you, you see all walks of life in this, but you're going to see. This is still a, a pulmonologist-dominated area just because we have access to the patients and their specimens and, and understand the evolution of the disease. Well, McGarry, I think we're probably running out of time, but um, anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up here? I think that I'm going to be a little bit on the optimistic side uh -huh. and say that, uh, that that number of people who respond to PD-1 inhibitors is going to continue to go up. Um, when we learn how to optimize it, we better be comfortable treating complications of immune therapy because immune therapies are taking over the universe and we're going to see more and more of them. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That's a great summary of what we've talked about. So thanks, everybody, for um, joining us today. Again, here with um, Gary Houghton, and, um, and we appreciate you guys listening in. All right.